Hello, and welcome to Talking Additive, episode 32. The most common phenomenon that we see is that institutions, companies, schools, whatever they may be, simply don't understand how great the benefits are to them for adopting additive because they don't have an evangelist or a knowledge-based person to go to. And so if you're listening to Talking Additive, there's a reasonable chance that you could be that evangelist or you could be that knowledge base within your organization. Yeah, the idea was to just build these experiences that software developers could see, could tangibly touch, could get excited about. And that involved 3D printing to a great degree, just because we could actually build things rather than try and figure out injection molded plastic or you know any of the other numerous ways of doing it. And every time we had a post-mortem after a conference with the demos that we had and experiences and stuff, it was always what worked well. And it was always the 3D printers just worked. More on this and other topics topics on Talking Additive. On Talking Additive, we sit down with business leaders, innovators, and allies to discuss the impact of adopting 3D printing in their businesses. How does adopting additive manufacturing positively benefit a business today? How is the role of 3D printing evolving within design, manufacturing, education, and our lives? And what will be possible in the future? Welcome to the 32nd episode for the Talking Additive podcast. Talking Additive launches new episodes on Tuesdays. Our first guest today will be Douglas Crone, founder and CEO of Dynamism. Dynamism was founded in Chicago in 1997 and has grown to become an industry leader with a global presence. Douglas, thank you so much for joining Talking Additive today. I'm really happy to have you on. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be on this podcast. My name is Douglas Crone. I'm the CEO at Dynamism. And my role is just helping our company grow and capture new customers and new markets and try to have the best technology for our customers and do the best we can to help customers achieve their goals. Take me back to the beginning of Dynamism. Why did you found Dynamism? I founded Dynamism because I was really excited to see a lot of innovators and entrepreneurs creating new pieces of interesting hardware. I was excited to use these things myself and I wanted to help bring them to the market. How would you introduce Dynamism to talking additive audiences? Dynamism is a leader. We try to be the leader in 3D printing and additive manufacturing for all kinds of customers, whether they're engineers, students, or large companies doing jigs and fixtures, or even end production. We offer hardware, but also training and also print services. So we try to have a portfolio of offerings to help people achieve what they're trying to achieve. So when did you first encounter 3D printers? I first saw 3D printers around 2010. Some of the early innovators in the 3D printing space that were more affordable, that could reach broader market, that could give more accessibility to more engineers within an organization, maybe hobbyists, students. There was just a movement towards more accessibility in 3D printing when there were a lot of innovators and entrepreneurs creating new hardware. Do you recall the, the first thing you ever 3D printed? Yeah, it's an iPhone case, <laughs> like everybody else, maybe. And I was quite happy with it. When I showed it to people that didn't know 3D printing, they just said, okay, it's an average iPhone case. I said, no, I made this, though. They said, but I bought this for $5 at the mall. It took a while. Early 3D printing wasn't like today's 3D printers. The product quality, reliability, repeatability was drastically different. And so I think all the people who were in 3D printing in 2010 they had to have a little bit of future vision and belief in 
what would come down the pipe and it has come down the pipe and now 3d printers print beautiful objects and use quality parts that are very impressive but in 2010 that wasn't totally the case i remember those days well and the iphone cases having uh, had a chance to see this stuff what inspired you to bring that kind of technology into dynamism Dynamism had been focused and is always focused on bringing the most transformative and innovative technologies to our customers. That could be 3D printing, 3D scanning, telepresence, some robotics. We're really looking to be on the cutting edge of next generation innovation so that customers can come to us and find products that will help them transform their business or accomplish what they're trying to do. I see dynamism popping up all over the world. I know I've run into you at events in almost every town that I've traveled to at some point in my, my journey of 3D printing. Talk a little bit about that spread, that reaching out and finding customers so widely distributed, what that experience has been like. And if you started with an aim to really have very, very wide audiences, or that's something that you've cultivated over the years? It's generally the case that people are really creative and innovative. And once they have the tools, they will think of things to do that the industry didn't think of, that we didn't think of. So we've always made it our goal to have the best tools, the best technology, and frankly, to deliver them with the best service and super locked down, dialed in, reliable after-sales support. Once you're doing that and the products are good, now people all over the country are getting tools that really fuel innovation and let them do things that we didn't think of, that the manufacturers didn't think of. And that's the really exciting thing, to see how people are using these to do new and interesting things. So I would say that the wide audience kind of finds us if we do our job correctly. So where are your offices located? I know you have some uh, footprint in Chicago. We're headquartered in Chicago, where we were founded. And then we have showrooms in those locations. And we also have showrooms in San Francisco and Detroit. But of course... Most customers interface with us online. We do online training, Zoom training, and delivery all over the country. Those are really interesting towns. It seems from looking at the past 10 years, each one of those towns has a lot of history in engineering, manufacturing, but a particular transformation in this last period of time. What's it been like seeing the changes in those towns? In those different regions, we see different emphasis in 3D printing. So for example, in California, it's what you might expect. All big tech companies use 3D printing. A lot of startups and unicorns and big tech all integrate 3D printing into their workflow and into their innovation. So what we see in California, we have a lot of customers that are frankly inventing new industries. What we see in Detroit is a little bit different. Most of our customers are in automotive and automotive supply chain. They're not inventing new industries, but they're reinventing one of the world's largest industries. They're starting from a really big place. And that transformation itself is a big undertaking and very exciting, but it's quite different. We also opened an office in the Denver area in 2019, just before the spread of the COVID pandemic. Speaking of which, do you have some thoughts about how the world is seeing 3D printing through the lens of this COVID era? I think the COVID era catalyzed a lot of the societal shift to digital living, but probably besides video conferencing, probably not more than it has for 3D printing because of a few phenomena. The biggest is in the beginning of the pandemic, seeing that countries without any local manufacturing capability in terms of manufacturing nasal swabs were really brought to a standstill. And although we didn't have swab manufacturing in America, the 3D printer install base allowed us to quickly turn on pretty massive swab manufacturing operation. That was really critical for the smooth continuance of 
society and economy. So 3D printing really stepped in in a huge way there. But even beyond that, we see a lot of companies rethinking supply chain and a sort of blind dependence on international shipping lanes and international stability always being there. So we've seen a huge drive from those sectors to integrate additive more into their portfolio of options. I'm not saying they're completely moving to additive, but they don't want to go forward without having that in their toolkit. I would use the analogy of Zoom or video work. It existed before the pandemic. Actually, we could have had a video conversation 20 years ago on the internet. But the pandemic catalyzed a move that integrated video conferencing. That's never going to go back. And I think it's the same for additive manufacturing. The pandemic pushed additive manufacturing really hard forward in the workflow of companies. That's not going to go back. So I think we come out of the pandemic at a dramatically higher level than we went into it as an industry. So, you know, we try to prepare for that and be best positioned to help lots of customers that want to accelerate that transition within their own organization. I think that's really savvy. I've, I've been talking with a lot of colleagues about this, and there are all these opportunities to allow you to optimize or, or have another route or have a short run accommodation to a supply chain issue. And that wasn't as exciting or persuasive until industry really had to pause and think because they couldn't get what they wanted. And what I think is really funny is they're talking to their relatives who have not paid attention to 3D printing all this time. They're all saying, oh, how's the supply chain going? They're all picking up on how the world has changed and that it's a, a little more vulnerable and there are all these complexities and logistics. So I, I think in that context, I'm, I'm really hoping to see what so many companies considering these challenges and having the tools of additive at their disposal what will happen to transform this? So everybody has a on-tap plan B supply for anything, and they're not caught unawares and really unable to move forward in the same way ever again. Totally agree with that. Okay, so Dynamism has a team that seems very passionate about 3D printing and helping customers doing more than just like selling machines. Do you want to talk a little bit about how you foster a culture of excitement about 3D printing there? First of all, we have an amazing team. Our team loves the products and loves providing customers with products that they like and making the products work well. Our strategy as a company has always been to grow with our customers. We really invest in the long-term success of the customer. We sell a lot of different technologies. So when we speak with customers, we have the options and we really make an effort to figure out what they're trying to do and give them the solution that's going to be the best for them and then grow with them. And in our hiring process, we try to find people who are passionate about the technology and about working with people. Speaking of people and the wide range of customers that Dynamism serves, what are some of the industries and verticals that are popular? We serve a pretty wide range of industries. We have a lot of automotive, electric car, architecture. Probably the largest is jigs and fixtures for manufacturing. Of course, education is a huge component of what we do with lots of 3D printer labs in universities and high schools across the country. And then what we find are we see industries that maybe nobody ever thought. We used to say, well, why is this company buying 3D printers? This is not obvious, but nothing surprises us anymore because 3D printing and added manufacturing is becoming so ubiquitous as part of the infrastructure of the economy. Probably every engineer that's come out of college in the last 10 years is accustomed to having added manufacturing, and wherever they are, they probably want some capacity to 3D print. 
I've had a guest on this show, Caroline Keep, educator from the UK, who shifted from initially teaching like university level down to really wanting to teach younger kids. And she starts one of her programs always with what's a career you might be interested in that you think 3D printing might not play a value. And she'll just overturn it. Like, here are the things you're learning 3D printing that, that could actually help. And she says sometimes this goes on like an hour. <laughs> I'm sure that in the 1980s or early 90s, there could be conversations where teachers would say to somebody, what's a career that doesn't use IT, that doesn't use computing? And people could probably give answers that they thought would be reasonable. But in the end, they all rely on IT and computing. And 3D printing is a little bit like that, I think. Speaking of computing, let's talk about Chris Benson, who has a background from Oracle. Why did you think he would be an excellent guest here on Talking Additive? Chris is... One of these folks who is constantly innovating and thinking about new and interesting things, passionate and excited about 3D printing and an expert at it. And he's come up with some amazing things at his company to use 3D printing in ways that nobody would have imagined that are really pretty cool. I definitely agree. I really had a great time chatting with him. I think we set aside 45 minutes for the interview and we kept going for three hours. And I think he really brings a fascinating perspective I think listeners would be interested in. I do think that's really true. Anytime I speak with Chris on 3D printing, it is an immensely interesting conversation. It goes on and I don't want it to end. He's got a lot of interesting things to say. So thinking forward, looking three to five years into the future, what are you hoping to see from Additive that you think will make a real difference for some of these companies that you've been talking to right now? I think one thing that we'd like to see is 3D printing becoming even more dead simple than it is. So as a tool, it still requires a reasonable amount of know-how and expertise to get consistently excellent results. That shouldn't be the case. It should be that if you're an aerospace engineer, you just only need to think about aerospace. In a 2D printer, when you push print, you know exactly what you're getting, and you're getting it 999 out of 1,000 times. And so we need to get to that point where the aerospace engineer, she just thinks about flight control surfaces, and she doesn't think about support structures. And she pushes print, and then she walks over and gets the print. And I think we've seen that in so many other areas of technology that the earlier products really require a tremendous amount of know-how. But it moves pretty fast. So I think simplicity to get really excellent results is something that the industry should work on. That's where the industry needs to be. I know this is an area that Ultimaker is really focused on. And definitely there's room to go further there. And hopefully as an industry, we will. Now, do you have some tips that you might pass on to Talking Additive listeners to help them grow 3D printing solutions within their own companies? Absolutely. So we see this all the time. The most common phenomenon that we see is that institutions, companies, schools, whatever they may be, simply don't understand how great the benefits are to them for adopting additive because they don't have an evangelist or a knowledge base person to go to. And so if you're listening to Talking Additive, there's a reasonable chance that you could be that evangelist or you could be that knowledge base within your organization. And your organization may not know that they need to ask you. So what you could do is kind of raise your hand and make the case and let them know that don't be scared of additive manufacturing. Don't be scared of 3D printing. When a person just starts out and looks at it, it looks like a lot that you have to study to understand, to know what printer to buy, what technology you want, what brand, where to buy it. It's a lot, but it's actually not that hard, especially if your organization has an evangelist. So raise your hand and help them make the transformation. 
almost all organizations have experienced tremendous benefit from adopting additive. And that's a perfect place to end it. Douglas, thank you so much for joining Talking Additive today. And I hope that you inspire lots of listeners, at least those who aren't already, to become the 3D evangelists where they are. Thanks so much for having me on. This is one of my favorites. So I'm excited to be on here. And thank you also for introducing Chris Benson to Talking Additive. I'm sure the listeners are going to enjoy that a whole lot. Perfect. Our first guest today was Douglas Crone, founder and CEO of Dynamism. Next up is the amazing Chris Benson, Oracle Experience Labs engineer and the creator of the world's largest Raspberry Pi cluster. My name is Chris Benson, and my role is, I I can't remember exactly what they ended up calling it, but I think it's Oracle XR Lab Design and Experience Engineer, or it might be Engineering Director. It's changed a bit, but somewhere around there. Perfect. So you have quite the background in software. How did you first get interested in coding and computers? You know, we live near Silicon Valley, so we had friends that worked at various different software companies, Lockheed. My grandpa worked on some of the Apollo mission stuff. So it's just in the area. You kind of chuck a rock and it's impossible to not hit something computer related. I got my first computer at home. My first personal one I bought was an Amiga 500, and I always wanted a C compiler, and it was like $200, just well out of my reach. But I thought with that, I could make it do things beyond basic. I think at school, we had Commodore Basic. I made little guys ski down the screen and stuff, and the teachers are all, oh, you're amazing. It really wasn't. But once I got to college, Borland Software was just down the street, and it was a pretty obvious place to go work, and got an internship there and worked my way up to be an engineer, and it was it was pretty awesome. So what inspired you to fill this role that you're now filling? It was an opportunity by a friend that we had done experiences before at conferences, and it grew to a point where they needed some dedicated people to build these experiences. Basically, there's conferences that are around the world, different sizes, large ones like open world, almost 100,000 people that go to them, and there's small ones with just user groups and stuff. And so we needed to have physical experiences that people could touch and see because technology from a kiosk is not that interesting. You have a salesperson or somebody kind of explaining it. And so our, our motto was no kiosks. Yeah, the idea was to just build these experiences that developers, because we're targeting software developers, that, that software developers could see, could tangibly touch, could get excited about. And that involved 3D printing to a great degree, just because we could actually build things rather than try and figure out injection molded plastic or you know any of the other numerous ways of doing it. And every time we had a post-mortem after a conference with the demos that we had and experiences and stuff, it was always what worked well. And it was always the 3D printers just worked and specifically Ultimaker because Ultimaker just hit some of the things on the head where you could just change the heads if one failed. You could change out filament. You could do different things. And and everyone, everyone says PLA is garbage. You'd be surprised what I've put PLA through. I have a workbench that's held up by PLA. The world's largest Raspberry Pi cluster is held up by tough PLA. So that's fantastic. So you were already thinking about and using 3D printing in uh, these experience installations for a while. So when did you first encounter 3D printing? I encountered 3D printing, I want to say somewhere around 2008, when I saw one of the first laser cut 3D printers, I don't remember which brand it was. 
I saw it at a kind of a maker's space and very interested. And I I'd always thought, hey, that'd be cool. But it didn't seem like the, the laser cut wood was going to be super accurate. I was looking at it. It's like, uh, well, I can almost do that with a hot glue gun. But then somewhere around 2013, I'm 6'5". I don't fit in anything. Desks, cars, airplane seats, you, you name it. Everything's meant for much shorter people. Up until six foot, you're usually okay. And I have a, a desk job. So I started looking into the ergonomics of things because everyone gets a kind of a twinge in their finger or something. If you haven't, you're lying to yourself. And everything out there, as I started researching it, is pretty much wrong on how to sit at a desk and how to ergonomically set things up. So I started looking at keyboards and how to hold your monitor, what height to put it all at and everything. I started building a keyboard, an ErgoDocs keyboard. And a friend had a 3D printer at work, an Ultimaker 2, and it was just big enough to print half of the ErgoDocs. And I started building some other ergonomic things so basically what I use for a desk is my whole own contraption. I've toyed with trying to sell pieces, be a furniture maker or whatever. I'd love to give it away and help people. I don't know that I could build a business around it. But anyway, you know, I started 3D printing more and more things. And I exercised my friend, <laughs> you know, usage of his printer, uh, well, work printer too, specifically, uh, a little too much. And so I, I felt it was time to go get a printer. So my first printer was a type A machine. I love the build volume, one foot cubed. It had a few problems with it, and then I ended up returning it. And then I bought a uh, Lulzbot Taz 5. So you had your own printer. Were you mostly printing like ergonomic elements at that point, or were you already starting to use it for some of these experiences or, or any other projects? At the time, I wasn't using it for the experiences. I was doing the ergonomic stuff. You know, I started learning CAD because I didn't, the, the idea of, of AutoCAD all these years was very tantalizing, but I never jumped into it. And I'd like to think I have a pretty good spatial ability compared to the average person. And I had done 3D stuff for 3D graphics and, and some stuff like that. So it wasn't too hard of a stretch, but it was hard to find good CAD software. I first tried Fusion 360, I think. I tried ViaCAD, tried FreeCAD, never could get my head quite wrapped around how that one worked. I don't know why. Well, it must have been me. I don't know. And then I ended up with OpenSCAD. And I was like, oh, this is cool. You can program it. You know, I still start off friends getting into 3D printing with OpenSCAD if they have a, especially a computer programming background. Marius Kintel, he's kept developing it. I actually hosted him on a an event for educators. He and an educator wrote a book, like an introduction to OpenSCAD. And they had updated some stuff. Actually, I hadn't predicted some of the things they had updated. It's kind of neat. Okay, so let's go back a bit because you were explaining about these experiences you helped to create. For the listeners, help them understand a little bit more what things like Open World and Code One, what are these shows like? How big are they? How many people are attending? And what kind of engagement do you all have with guests coming there? Code One got merged into Open World in San Francisco. Right. So it's been about 50 to 60,000 developers, Oracle, a lot of databases, DBAs and stuff like that come. And there's a whole business solutions. You know, it's like any conference where there's just tons of, as far as I can see, people selling whatever it is that they have and trying to get your attention. Then we have Code One, and that's a sub-conference off to the side. And it has an area called The Hub. And the hub is where developers can just come and lounge. We had a beer demo. It was called Blockchain Beer because we were tying it in with our blockchain supply chain stuff, which was really cool, by the way. I mean, I could go off on blockchain for hours and it, 
I think it's worthless as a cryptocurrency, but awesome for trying to track things. But we had this lounge and we had experiences. So we would sit down and brainstorm just like any other conference, what to have there. And we always had a booth in the, the open world big open space. So there'd be some, some Oracle booth over there. And then sometimes we'd have similar demos in both places or experiences. So we would make robot arms that would laser cut coasters and you could come up to an iPad that's embedded into some sort of box looking kiosky thing and type in your name and you'd get this custom laser cut coaster. We'd upgrade it, find all the flaws in it and upgrade it the next year to do luggage tags because that's a little bit more useful. Then we had escape rooms. So I built two roughly eight foot cubed uh, uh, rooms with a door that, well, you can't do a door because there's fire codes. So it had a curtain that would automatically shut when you hit the big button. And there's two rooms. One of them has Thor's hammer and Captain America's shield. So you have to try and solve the puzzles to, to escape the room. And there's Thor's hammer you can't pick up, but that's all 3D printed. Anytime we need a thing, oftentimes you could either go to the hardware store, it might not exist or somewhere else. Maybe it does, maybe it's better, but oftentimes we'd 3D print it and then we'd tell a story about it. Then, you know, we got into bigger and bigger things and sometimes small things because small things work really well too. So if you can make things really small, we ended up making this e-ink display. There's a custom PCB and a, and a little microchip on it so you could program it. It was a lanyard. It was a conference badge that you could program. You can use our cloud and stuff to program and display what you want on the badge. Seems simple enough, but then people would take it and they'd go home and someone would program their front gate or something so they could hit the button and it would open the gate. Who would have thought? So yeah, these conferences are, are big. There's a lot of people and we have these different spaces. And then what would happen since that's Oracle's big conference, there's smaller open worlds around, around the world and other conferences as well. The people that run those conferences and are involved in them, they're basically at the store shopping for, for experiences and ideas. And, and we're thinking about next year brainstorming. Typically that happens around October. And then by about December, then these experiences have to get made smaller and packaged up and shipped around the planet. Oftentimes, at least for a while, I would go meet them in the cool cities, Rome or Tokyo, different places. And we, I'd meet up with them and teach the people there how to run these experiences. Then they'd take those and go to even more conferences. And then I'd come back and then we build the next experience, whatever that grand plan was, sometimes bigger, sometimes smaller, but usually more ambitious, pushing all the boundaries, ordering more printers, <laughs> ordering more filament. <laughs> Okay, so now let's open that very big box. So what on earth inspired you all to create the world's largest Raspberry Pi supercomputer? So we were sitting around, we had built, if you've seen the movie, The Matrix, where they have that 360 degree camera, we had built one of those with 60 Raspberry Pis that would take a picture all at the same time and stitch them all together and make a video. Raspberry Pis were cool. You could see the electronics and we thought we could do something bigger. My manager came up to me and said, oh, you know, someone has an idea. Let's build the world's largest Raspberry Pi, or let's build a thousand Pi cluster. That's what he said. Because we had a Pi cluster at one conference that had, I think, six Pi. I don't know, six or eight Pi's, kind of your standard yeah. Pi cluster. So we looked it up right there and we saw that the biggest one was know, Los Alamos lab, some lab, some lab somewhere that did a 700 pi cluster or something. And someone said, let's do a thousand pi. And I said, no, that's stupid. My manager at the time, he knew that I was egging him on. And he's like, no, no, it's a thousand. It'd be awesome. And I'm like, no, you need a thousand twenty-four. 
<laughs> yeah. So the way the numbers worked, we actually had 1,050 and we disabled enough to make it 1,024. So that was the idea to go big. There was a lot of different people. You have to have input on these kinds of, especially, you know, very large projects. You can roughly do the math. A Raspberry Pi is 35 bucks and every cable costs an additional dollar to $6 and you need a lot of cables and then take your number and probably double it. It's a very big project. And and then take that and multiply that by time because just putting SD cards in all the Pi and if you have to flash them. So that was the big thing was network booting. So we network booted the whole entire Pi cluster and I would not have been able to do it. This is a shameless plug. I would not have been able to do it without Oracle Linux and the Oracle Linux team because you can do these kinds of cool things when you have a team behind you that build the software. That helps tremendously. The Oracle Linux team came through and and got the network booting fully, 100% working, And then we didn't have to do SD cards. So that saves, even if it's one minute per SD card, which it takes more than that to unwrap the SD cards, let alone flash them and stick them in the (laughs) Pi cluster. So there was somewhere around 60 something people that were helping assemble all these because they each Pi had to go on a caddy. There are 21 Pi in a caddy each in a 2U. And there was four full-size network racks that had six of those 42 Pi modules. And, and when I did presentations like this, because no one in their right mind is going to buy off on and say, okay, yeah, build a world's largest Raspberry Pi cluster. So what I did is we did drawings, slide decks, because everyone works in slide decks in business world. And the slide deck had the Pi cluster in a blue British telephone booth. And everyone would ask why I needed to build it in that because everyone was asking to build it modularly so that you could then assemble this and then separate it out and it could go to other conferences. And and that actually doesn't work. It's a great in concept, but the way the Pi cluster needs to work is it needs to be exposed to the outside world as one IP address, one computer. So when you plug it into a network connection, it's one computer. Because if you think about it, normally at home, your home network, you can have 255 devices on your home network, not 1,050. Plus you have all those network switches and various other things that are helping support this thing. So now you have to go to really serious class B networking and it gets quite a bit trickier. It just doesn't work. So the original idea was to build a large pie cluster, but that could disassemble and get put back together. And we ended up doing it in a blue British telephone booth. And the reasoning for that was it needed to be bigger on the inside. So that was fun in the, in those presentations. (laughs) Yes, you're definitely flying your nerd flag very high with that one, which is wonderful. So how about the use of 3D printing? Like, you know, it made sense that you, when you were creating things that you didn't have before, you were 3D printing them. What was the problem that you were solving with these that 3D printing was the best way? Anytime there was a thing that I needed, a physical thing, the first thing that we had, problem that we had to solve where you needed a thing was how to hold that many pi. Now... We did a lot of research and you can find some pre-existing products you can buy for building small pie clusters. They're very expensive. What we were trying to do is we were trying to do it so that anybody could come at it and use the same things that we built and build this at home. So at first we looked at, okay, let's get it in one U and let's turn them sideways. No, that didn't work. Okay, so we kind of quickly came to the orientation. They needed to be vertical on how they stacked the best. But first I wanted to get rid of all the bolts because it's actually worthwhile doing the engineering on something like this because just like you're doing a car or any other product, if you can remove a bolt, there's time, there's money. 
So I tried to make it so that I could print the caddy and just kind of slide the pie in and maybe one bolt to hold all the pie in or two bolts, one on each end. I didn't have a big enough printer that could print a full 18 inches. It ended up having to be four pieces and then I had to figure out how to join them. So there was lots of iterations. And if you go to my personal blog where I was doing that, chrisbenson.blogspot.com is where that, that stuff lives. And there's pictures on there with kind of the iterations and thought processes that I was having at the time. Cause I was trying to document it as I was doing it. Cause I knew that I wouldn't do it later on. So each time we needed a thing, you know, started off with the little caddies. They went through a lot of different iterations. And then finally the caddies got that dialed in and figured out how to get 21 pi. That was the highest density of any pi cluster that I've seen. And then anytime there needed to be a bracket, like just the network racks, they didn't quite fit. I got 8020 to be the corners, the extruded aluminum. The 3D printer people are pretty familiar with extruded aluminum. This was the large series. And the pie rack sat in between that and two pieces of plywood sandwiched it from either side. Those brackets that came with it, they didn't quite work. So I 3D printed some new ones that held the whole pie cluster together. I didn't have time to go to a hardware store one day and I needed something that was 90 degrees so I could make sure that everything was 90 degrees. So I printed it in the printer while I was doing other things. And then the casters that held the whole thing, I had a a particular hole pattern that those casters mounted to. And so I needed a bracket that that cut out for the holes there and could bolt through the ends of the 8020 and through the plywood and then also receive a caster. I was gonna machine that up out of aluminum and then I thought, let's just see if this works. It's still there, so nice. Tough PLA. <laughs> That's fantastic. I do have a question that I probably should have asked earlier. Why is it exciting to have so many physical nodes for the Raspberry Pi cluster? Explain it to audiences, including me. <laughs> Why is that more exciting than say a really robust server with a lot of virtualization? First off, Nobody builds these kinds of things and makes them portable. That's one very, very odd thing about that particular demonstration. But what is the use of all those nodes? So there's four cores on each processor. So you have 4,096 nodes or processors and you have a gig of RAM. So that's 4,096, you know, gigs (laughs) of RAM. When you add it up, it starts getting insane. Now, a good chunk of that is taken up by the operating system. And then since we network booted it and we we did what's called overlay file system, so everything's run in memory, you only get about half of that. But still, even if you half that, that's a lot of RAM, that's a, that's lot. a lot of different nodes. And we didn't really push this because it takes time to build those kinds of pieces of software. So what we did is the first project was a community project. We ran Java. They had a mobile app and they, you sent some numbers up to it and it would do some calculations and then it would display it on this. It was a 12K video wall. So it was quite impressive. Just the video wall. It was pretty cool. I had done a, I did a little test. One of my first tests of getting the Pi cluster, making sure it was working was I calculated Pi. The problem with calculating Pi is, you know, you can't split it up across multiple processors. So it was each one was calculating pi. (laughs) What good is that? You figure that one out. So we've had a lot of these thoughts and a lot of these questions. That's what everyone asks is, you know, what are you doing? And it's about inspiring. Let's face it. It was, it's really a showman piece. It's just to go, Hey, here's a bunch of stuff. And we tied in a lot of technologies that we were trying to tie in with the cloud and with, you know, Oracle Linux and, and we were testing out things. And a lot of this is open source. So we've given a lot of these different pieces away, including the brackets. If anyone wants to go print them, they're up on Thingiverse, but you know, it's what you learn about it. 
when you do these kinds of things, especially at this scale, it's more about what you learn. It's about the teaching moments. It's about the conversations. And everyone that worked on the project learned a lot. So what other kinds of projects have you been doing lately with 3D printing, maybe since the pandemic? There's probably, I mean, there's been half a dozen projects, but the two that are biggest, I did the world's largest working Lego computer. So take a 1980s Lego computer and scale that up 15 times. <laughs> so it's as big as I could print with an Ultimaker S5. And on that, I was running an open source JavaFX video game that someone had written called SpaceFX. And the intro scene to that, so like the splash screen, is a mock-up of the original Lego, you know, has those big red and blue kind of buttons, I guess they are. I don't know. It's pretty cool. So that was actually published in last month's Make Magazine. And so for the past, I don't know, six months or so, it's actually been going on longer than that. So Oracle sponsored Red Bull this year, and that's my fault. With conferences going virtual and being in Zoom, I did a lot of thoughts around how boring that's going to be. And anytime you're just sitting on listening to someone talk or a slideshow over Zoom, you're going to lose people. And as soon as they get an email or a text, they're gone. <laughs> that's it. So I wanted to make something more interactive. And I knew some company would figure it out. And people tried different things and with mild success and mostly hoping that we're coming back in person, which is hopefully it'll happen. And it's starting to happen. But we still need a hybrid approach. So my goal was to have this experience that would be virtual to support hybrid and support in person as well. And I was doing a lot of research into this and, and I thought, well, you know, race cars are pretty cool. People like race cars. People like toy bricks that stack together and hook together. And so let's make a Raspberry Pi driven race car with toy bricks using RC parts and that you have a camera on it and you can drive over the internet. How hard could that be? And at first I thought I would just 3D print the parts to interface the servo motors and all the parts make a bracket for the Pi and, and it would mount to the bricks. But then quickly, I, I, I mean, I can see now why people that are really into building with bricks, why they have entire rooms and little drawers dedicated to this mm -hmm. whole thing and all ironed out. You know, as a kid, I just had a big box and I just rummage around for the part that I needed. But you really need... I hadn't built bricks professionally before. So now I guess I can say that I have. <laughs> and it's a totally different level. So some of them, once in a while, I'd, I'd need a specific size brick. And so I'd go model it up and print it. And then I would tweak it and tweak it more until I got them so they actually had that clinch factor. It was not perfect, but with a 0.25 millimeter nozzle, it gets really close. Yep. So mix of all these different things, Lo and behold, I ended up with most of the whole entire race car 3D modeled, and we started using it in Blender. But I could print out any part of it. I can't give it away because it's copyright infringement, but yeah, I can give out the parts that I interfaced with. So that's the goal, is to make it so that people can make this brick race car so that anybody can build it. Anybody can come to a conference, virtual or in person, and see it and maybe build their own experience it at least in some way, shape, or form, and it's running all the, the Oracle stack and interfacing with that. Because what it comes down to is my job's supported by the software that Oracle's selling, and it's infrastructure stuff. It's not exciting, just as it is. 
And so it, to make it exciting for people who want to look at it, I need to make something that people want to look at. And a brick car that you can drive around and interface with is a whole lot of fun, like a pie cluster, but much smaller and actually, honestly, more difficult to build than a pie cluster. So considering all the opportunities you've had to experiment with 3D printing, where do you think in the next couple of years from seeing the trajectory that you've been observing, where do you think this field is going, particularly in terms of how you might make use of it in three years or five years time? That's an interesting question because it, it has changed a lot since I started, but a lot of fundamentals have, have stayed the same. So I'd say there's been a lot of new companies, a lot of new players into the market that I've seen. They're coming up with materials that are cheaper and faster in almost every way better or at least comparable to a machined part. The other thing that I'm hoping is I'm hoping the industry, you know, the plastic, it's not exactly very environmental and, and the filament rolls too. So I like what protopasta does with the, the cardboard filament rolls. Yeah. I'm hoping at least when you get out for like 50 years or something, we can go mine asteroid belts with droid printers that can go out and just chew up an entire asteroid and spit out a, a spaceship or something or a, another <laughs> chain for the for yeah. our uh, interplanetary space elevator or something. So I think it's going to accelerate here because it's even in the last two years, I've seen more and more happening than I have the last previous like five years. So the last question is, so what do you think? Should data centers and, and projects in the back end of computer engineering, do they need 3D printers? Of course. Everyone needs a 3D printer. Are you kidding? Personally, I think every kid should grow up having them and just being a, another hammer in the tool chest that you have as far as a, a thing that you go to when you go to make something. We're not there yet. We're not even close, but it's on that trajectory. As soon as you can have a 3D printer that's printing from quarks, that's going to be really interesting. <laughs> you, you buy seven vials and you stick them into a printer and it just makes the thing literally from the ground up. <laughs> you know, as far as engineering, as far as data centers, you can come up with a use case for doing it. I mean, I know that companies like Coca-Cola and when they do assembly lines, I know they're using the printers Yeah. because they don't have to ship the parts around the planet. They can just send the file there. Yeah. I have a bonus question. Do you have any tips for talking out of listeners who are looking to uh, adopt 3D printing in their companies? How do you recommend that they add this as another hammer in their tool belt? It depends on where they're coming from. If it's something they're trying to, you know, because there's going to be different levels of this. There's going to be people that think it can solve the problem and they don't have access to a printer. And then there's going to be people that have the printer at home and just need to prove it out to, to justify for the company to buy one. But either in either case, they're trying to justify the company to, to buy one. So they're coming at it from one of two angles. They just need to solve that beginning part before they get the company to justify it. It's easier if you have one and you can come in and you can show your boss or manager or whatever it is, hey, we got this thing, it solves this problem, there it is. Some cases they'll want you just to keep printing at home because they'll be like, why do we need to buy one? So that's a challenging, <laughs> that's a challenging part. That, that's the same part for the other side though, that if there is no access to one and you have no proof of concept, but what you can do is you can send out and hire a part to be 3D printed. Because there's so many people that are going to try and justify it for a business and there's so many different levels of that. But if you can show an actual physical part without too much, you know, what it solves, that's the big one is showing. Because the thing didn't exist yesterday, but it exists today and it solves a problem. What's fun about 3D printing is 
even though I've been doing it for nine years-ish or so and observing it for longer, I still get giddy when that print comes off the build plate and something I had in my mind is now a physical object. I think every contractor needs to have one because there's a, a neighbor, I think it was a neighbor doing something and he needed a washer, a spacer. And so I, I just asked him what the inside dimensions, outside dimensions and the thickness. And 20 minutes later, I gave it to him. There it is. A slide deck isn't going to quite cut it. Chris, th- thank you. That's really helpful advice. And and thank you again for joining Talking Out of today. Thanks for having me. This has been a whole lot of fun. I know we went over, but I'm having a fun time. So thank you. <laughs> thank you again to Douglas Crone of Dynamism and Chris Benson, Oracle Experiences Labs engineer, for joining us today. We hope that you have enjoyed our 32nd episode for the Talking Additive podcast. If you have questions about any topics covered during this episode of Talking Additive, we invite you to post on Twitter or LinkedIn to hashtag Talking Additive, all one word. Talking Additive launches new episodes each Tuesday. Next week, join us to meet Eric Richardson, Continuous Improvement and Quality Manager at IPG in Utah who has amazing insights into roles for 3D printing within a fast-moving factory environment. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and join the conversation by signing up for news and announcements at TalkingAdditive.com. Thank you again to Douglas and Chris. Our episode editor is Alexander Seuss. Our series producer is Hannah Gabrielle Tacchini. Studio manager, David Roberson. Music by Brian Scarry and Giulio Carmasi of Hummingbirds Custom Music and Sound. I am host and producer, Matt Griffin, and thank you for listening. On Talking Additive, we hold conversations with colleagues and customers about 3D printing's impact on business.